You are listening to Radio Reversal here on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. I'm Anna and I am so excited to be in the studio this week with a super special guest producer. Malak, welcome to the studio. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you feeling? Good. A little nervous, but that's okay. Yeah. First time on the radio at 4ZZZ? Yes. Yes. But not the first time on the radio, I think. No? Or first time on the radio? I've never been on radio. Never been on radio. Okay, well, we do love that at 4ZZZ. Malik, for um, a lot of our listeners, we'll have already heard your voice on the airwaves because, um, as regular listeners know, we've been um, building a bit of an archive of the Justice for Palestine struggle here in uh, Magunjan, so-called Brisbane, over the last little while, and we've been lucky enough to broadcast some of your speeches. But for folks who, who haven't heard those... Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess your relationship to the, the Justice for Palestine struggle? Yeah. Um, so I'm Palestinian diaspora. My grandfather's from a town called Barbara, which was destroyed in 1948. My grandmother's from a town called Silwan, which is in Jerusalem. And so my whole life uh, in diaspora, I've had a deep connection to Palestine even though I've only visited the country once I was taught our customs and how to cook our foods and our dabka and our henna and everything so um, now that I'm an adult <laughs> I've uh, started taking part in protests and being part of Justice for Palestine and trying to do my part as a Palestinian diaspora to bring knowledge onto my communities and just my people in general now struggle. Mm, and I mean it's been I think um, tireless work you've been speaking at so many events you've been like helping organise the, the big peaceful assemblies that have been happening on Sundays um, among lots of other I think kind of um, everyday education work that Palestinians we know are confronted by constantly um, do you want to tell us a little bit about so t today's show we're kind of talking through uh, what's happening in, in Palestine at the moment but m more specifically we, we're kind of trying to draw out some of the links between um, the the movements for climate justice that have been building globally and the struggle for Palestine and really strongly understand how these struggles are connected but also the kind of frustration that climate justice movements aren't necessarily always engaging direct, directly with the free Palestine movement. Um, so tell us about your relationship to the climate justice work. Like, what brings you into that kind of thinking? Um, well, as a kid, I would go to my grandfather's farm every year and I would work with him and we'd cultivate on the land. He'd teach me about, like, he would grab the soil and he would feel it and he would say, okay, this, uh, because we're in a drought right now, mm. the soil's dry, so these are the plants we're going to use to help uh, give nutrients into the soil. And then from there... I just loved <laughs> the environment. So I studied environmental science in high school and now I'm doing a degree in environmental science as well and have helped, well not helped, but participated in school strike for climate change and all of that. That was exciting. But yeah, my mm -hmm. connection to climate justice is probably one that was created from my grandfather's like uh, sorrow mm. in missing his land and how he tried to connect to any other land he could find. And so I kind of realised how important land cultivation was to people. And so I just tried to 
help restore the land mm. i guess in my studies yeah and I, I feel like that's a it's a perfect and very poignant introduction to the the kind of conversation we're having today right which is about what it means if your orientation to climate justice comes from ancestral indigenous relationships to land um and the way that that gives us a, a clear sense of the struggle for a free palestine as a climate justice struggle yeah it's it was a bit upsetting with the amount of like peers in my degree who uh, didn't say anything when I was I was a bit shocked because as environmental science students we learn about how um, indigenous communities cultivated on the land and they use permaculture and uh, all types of different uh, farming systems and how that worked for them and how they have such a deep connection and where we as environmental scientists and environmental students are trying to mitigate the climate crisis and yet there was this disconnect between a connection with the land and mitigation of climate crisis which I found a bit confronting mm. oh. yeah and I, I think again this really speaks to the um like the absence of all the ways that kind of I guess uh non-indigenous led climate movements and environmental movements have often um overlooked the kind of yeah. they've overlooked the um the origins even of the climate crisis in precisely colonization white supremacy european imperialism racial capitalism all of these dynamics right um we're going to dig into this heaps more over the course of the show but um if you've just tuned in we this is radio reversal where we're thinking on today's show as we have been over the past couple of months about um I guess the the Palestinian resistance movement globally and um, the the struggle for a free Palestine in the face of the Israel's genocidal violence in in Gaza and increasingly in the West Bank. Um, Malak, I know you've had to talk about this a lot already this year, but um, for for any listeners who haven't been following, can you give us a bit of an introduction to what's been happening in in Gaza, especially in the last couple of months? Yep. In the past two months, uh, Israel has done what it does every two years, which it calls mowing the lawn. That's the um, operation, the term they use. Um, Except this time it's at a larger scale and it's been going on for uh, two months rather than like 50 days, as it kind of usually is. Um, And the casualties... Well, they're not casualties. (laughs) They're murders. There has been just insanely high with like over 20,000 people and 8,000 children um, and half of Gaza's infrastructure is destroyed all of the orchid farming is destroyed which means they can't uh, export orchids anymore and their um, economic status is as well destroyed so this isn't just like a, a war or just an easy way to look at it where it's like oh it's just war it'll end soon this is this is dismantling all of the palestinian gazan civilization from infrastructure to healthcare to uh, psychology to food to farming to everything and Mm. it's gonna be extremely hard to come back from yeah absolutely and and this is also i think the linkage into and you alluded to this already that this um this genocidal violence in Gaza is also about creating an uninhabitable 
place Mm -hmm. um and i think this is this is kind of the the place we wanted to talk about in relation to climate justice movements right is that colonization is always climate injustice um it is a project of making it um making indigenous lands uninhabitable for um, the peoples who belong to them um so the the kind of other in in addition to this this um horrific violence that we're seeing in gaza the other kind of global moment that we're responding to in the show today is that it's um what's commonly called cop 28 or the united nations climate change conference is happening at the moment in the united arab emirates which is just under two thousand kilometers away from gaza so kind of um just around the corner really Mm -hmm. um and COP28, if anyone hasn't been following, it's a, a massive global conference. They happen um, They happen fairly regularly. The United Nations draws together nation states who send delegations to kind of report on how the state is responding to the climate crisis. Um, it is, um, as you could expect, the COP28 almost always involves fairly radical suggestions from um, Indigenous and formerly colonised nation states, including this year things like reparations for climate injustice um, for, for those nations that are now facing the brunt of um, of climate injustice, even mm-hmm. while, you know, the, the former colonisers are, um, are reaping rewards. Um, and it also usually involves colonising powers, including so-called Australia and Israel, um, either making no promises at all or making promises for um, things that really constitute what we'd call greenwashing. So mm-hmm. um, masking the colonial violence of the state um, through piecemeal concessions to sustainability or climate mitigation. And so this is kind of the, like, this is the dynamic that we wanted to talk about today, right, was mm-hmm. that at the same time as Israel is conducting this horrific genocidal war on um, Gaza and, and um, you know, has long been responsible for horrific violence across historic Palestine, um, they're also presenting at COP28 on climate mitigation measures, sustainability, um, you know. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, it is really confronting when you when you kind of put those two things together, right? Um, so, all in all, today's show is, is pretty massive. There's a bunch of stuff to get through. Um, if, you've, if you've just tuned in, we are talking this week on, I guess, the, the intersections of climate justice and the struggle for a free Palestine. Um, you, uh, yeah, and, and I think we're, we're eager to hear from all of you. This is obviously stuff that um, connects to a lot of people's experiences of um, climate justice, injustice, things you've noticed about the ways that movements for climate justice are re- um, represented. Please do get in touch if you have thoughts. Um, you can text us on 0420-626-733. Um, you can also give us a call here in the studio on three two five two one triple five, or find us at Radio Reversal on um, online. Um, and of course, the requisite reminder that uh, we can only have these conversations on Four Triple Z because of um, the the support of subscribers who keep the station on the air. Um, we know in this moment more than ever um, the importance of having community and independent media. Uh, we know that the mainstream media cannot be trusted to tell the truth about um, either climate injustice globally or the struggle for a free Palestine Um, and so we need all of you to make sure that independent media can stay on the airwaves so head on over to the 4ZZZ website um, hit subscribe you won't regret it 
I promise. Before we jump into um, the rest of our conversation, we're going to go to another little track. This is just a little um, a little gift for your Thursday morning eardrums. This is a new one from Thelma Plum. We don't talk about it. I am driving near the river in West End And I feel like a hug from an old friend I pull over, I nearly crashed my car When I saw him with his arms around her If it happened to me, it'll happen to her It doesn't make it better that I went first We don't talk about it, we don't talk about it If it happened to me, it'll happen to her What the girls went through, yeah, they didn't deserve it We don't talk about it, we don't talk about it, no Did he take you to meet all of his friends or gaslight you? Make jokes at your expense, does he whimper and cry when you have sex? Then right after, talk about his ex. If it happened to me, it'll happen to her It doesn't make it better that I went first We don't talk about it, we don't talk about it If it happened to me, it'll happen to her What the girls went through, yeah, they didn't deserve it We don't talk about it, we don't talk about it If it happened to me, it'll happen to her It doesn't make it better that I went first What a way to come into Thursday morning. That was the beautiful Thelma Plum with We Don't Talk About It, a new one um, released just a few weeks ago. Um, I'm Anna, you're listening to 4ZZZ. This is Radio Reversal and I'm in the studio with Malak. Together we are reversing the radio on the the linkages between, um, I guess, colonisation, histories of empire, climate injustice, particularly in relation to the struggle for a free Palestine. Um, we've been talking through already some of the ways that climate justice necessitates engaging with, with land back at the centre of the movement, um, which essentially is a way of saying that there cannot be climate justice without decolonisation. Um, because even if, <laughs> even if we do all of the green transitions we want, um, it will still be an unjust um, 
uh, distribution of land if it does not begin with decolonisation. Yes. <laughs> Decolonise it all. Yes. <laughs> so we are going to dig into this further um, throughout the rest of the show, but um, we wanted to start with a little um, part of an interview that I recorded with um, Arnie Tracy Hanshaw a couple of weeks ago at the, the Rising Tide Blockade um, down in Mulabimba, so-called Newcastle. Um, that coal port is the, the biggest coal port in the world, um, and activists blockaded the port for um, just over 30 hours um, as part of a kind of growing movement to, to name the ways that the extraction of, um, of particularly extraction and, and export of coal um, is, is directly causing the kinds of climate injustice um, that we're seeing sh- shape the world at the moment. So Arnie Tracy was one of the, one of the um, Awabakal um, and um, Gawigal elders who was, who was down there supporting the blockade. Um, and she talked to me a little bit about some of the, the linkages that she sees between the struggle for climate justice um, and decolonisation globally and particularly the solidarities that she and her community feel with Palestinians at the moment. So we're here on Wabagul land um, and I'm catching up with Annie Tracy Hanshaw who's one of the, the spokespeople for this place in this country. Um, Annie Tracy, tell me what we're doing here. Okay, so um, rise... I'm Tracy Hanshaw and I'm from Justice Arnie's here in Mullumbimba on a Wabakal land in Newcastle. And we're here at the Rising Tide event because this is the largest coal port in Australia here in Newcastle. And the amazing Rising Tide crew and their mobs have staged a lar- one of the largest coal blockades ever in this country and ever here in Newcastle. So we're here in support of them today and working together to help protect the land and this country's future. So um, I was lucky enough to just be sitting here in a conversation with you that was kind of kind of drawing some connections between the organising that's happening here in opposition to the continued expansion of the coal industry in so-called Australia, um, but connecting that to the struggles for climate justice globally led by Indigenous peoples everywhere. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the kind of connections you see between um, climate justice on this continent and everywhere else? So I've just returned from um, an environmental and sustainability conference in Sulawesi and while I was there I met with the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Fisheries, the University and we were um, examining the effects of the land post-tsunami which when you think about it, tsunami is a big wave that comes in and impedes on the land. Well, when climate change is not looked after, monitored and brought um, under control and the sea levels are rising and impeding onto land, that land becomes contaminated from seawater. So we really, really... And once that land's contaminated, it's useless. You can't farm, you can't grow food, you can't get fresh water. Um, There's very little you can do. And I saw that firsthand for myself in Sulawesi and... And... um, I've seen what happens once the land's contaminated by seawater and we can't, we can't allow that to happen here. So stopping coal and the fossil fuel emissions that get 
come from coal burning and things like that are causing the climate change and that's what we have to control and minimise. And that's why protests like this are very important. But it's not just in Australia, it's around the world. First Nations peoples around the world are fighting this fight, the environmental sustainability fight. And, you, you know, when you think about invasion and colonisation, it's all about the land grab, control and making money out of the land. That's what colonisation is at the expense of everybody that lives on that land. So for 235 years in Australia, they've been doing it. For 75 years in Israel, they've been doing it. That's what Gaza is all about now. That's why our Palestinian brothers and sisters are suffering and being murdered right now in the form of a genocide. That's 75 years into that war. It didn't start on October 7th. Just like we're 235 years into that war on the Indigenous in Australia. So there's a, there's a camaraderie amongst Indigenous around the world and that's why we have that unique bond with these people. Even though we don't know them, we know their struggle, we know their fight and that's why Aboriginal people, First Nations peoples in Australia connect and support wholeheartedly the people in Palestine. You know, I know one of my elders recently came out and said there's no similarities. Everything is similar. There is a huge similarity. And that's why First Nations peoples around Australia, here in Newcastle, in Brisbane, every aspect of this country, in Sydney, every capital city, is rallying to support the people of Gaza, the Palestinians, the natives, First Nations of that country. We understand their fight, the, the genocide of them and the useless, senseless killing all over land. Absolutely, and I think that those threads are particularly clear given that we're here um, contesting further expansions of the coal industry in so-called Australia. We know that since October 7, at least seven new extractive mining licences have been issued over Gaza by the Israeli authorities. So there are very clear um, explanations that come from the kind of um, the use of this form of I extreme racial violence as a tool of a land grab. Yeah. Um, one of the points you made in the discussion we were having before was about the... Um, the essential centering of land back as the foundation of climate justice. Yep. For folks who haven't made that connection yet, can you talk it through? I'll do my best. Um, look, everybody knows that the Indigenous of this country looked after this land for 65,000 years. How on God's green earth, and that's Australia, in 235 years can the government that up? Um, you know, they've raped and pillaged the land, the land, not the country. I'm talking about the land they take it from. It's destroying the land. Not only does fossil fuel burn and damage the ozone layer and the climate outside, but the damage they're doing to the land under the ground by mining this is what's dangerous. They are getting close to titanic um, plates that shift and move. That coal has formed the fortress of those plates. You know, we have artesian water underneath the ground that gives it enough softness to move. This is creation, like this is how it was meant to be. You start pulling coal out of that ground and weakening that ground around it. We're getting screwed from the bottom of the centre of the earth to above it and it's got to stop. The reason that um, seven coal licences have been issued like in Gaza from Israel. Again, it's about the land grab. 
just like it's been done in Australia and especially here in Newcastle. You know, my mobs uh, were documented back in the 1800s of um, being the only Aboriginal mob in Australia to talk about coal in their dream time and how dangerous it was and that's why they embedded it back into the earth so that it wasn't outside burning the earth because they knew tens of thousands of years ago before scientists that my mobs knew that coal was dangerous. Just like in the Northern Territory, their mobs talk about Ukrainian stories in their dream time. Uh, uranium, sorry. We, our, my mob down here were the first to ever in Australia be known and the only known um, mob with their dream time stories talking about coal. So when all governments, whenever they take over Indigenous lands and First Nations people's lands, it's always about the land grab. It's always about how they can make money, how the government... And those governments are British settlements. In 1945, the English government gave the Jewish, after World War II, Palestine to live in, despite the fact that there was Palestinians still living there because the country was colonised. Ding, ding. That sounds like Australia. So... The only way you can take forcibly land from people is to kill them and take them. And that's what we're seeing happening in Gaza right now. You're listening to 4 Z. That was the absolutely extraordinary Annie Tracy Henshaw speaking to us down at um, Mullumbimba, um, so-called Newcastle. Reflections, Malak? I think the first thing I like noticed what she said was um, land contamination don't think people know that soil and land are not sustainable resources Mm. it takes 500 to a thousand years for soil systems to replenish the nutrients that they need to have proper farming on the land so any kind of contamination whether that's from uh, sea level rises or bombing or white phosphorus that has completely contaminated the earth not only so that it can't you can't cultivate on the land but so that the minerals that are now inside the land are going to make people ill yeah and that's what i think is the evilest part about colonization it's the silent genocide mm. part yep where they ruin your um processes of cultivation and to the extent that it'll make you sick and either you die of starvation or you die of um, mineral contamination. Yeah, toxicity, right? Yeah. And this is, I think, again, this is these are long-standing patterns and I think this is part of what led, um, what listeners might have heard us talk about this before, but led um, black environmental or black-led environment movements in the US to coin the term environmental violence as a way to describe the specific ways that colonisation and white supremacy converge to create actively toxic environments for um, particularly communities of colour and Indigenous communities. Um, But I think the point you make about this being the kind of silent side of these genocidal projects is really important, right? Yeah, because when we... I remember when we learnt about uh, the Native Americans or what happened in Australia and the way my history teacher framed it was we only killed about this many people the rest died from disease or lack of food they didn't die there was a reason that happened yeah and even though it wasn't an active like uh you know through some sort of physical violence it's still in my eyes and i think many people's eyes murder yeah absolutely 
and it still counts as genocide like you can't especially with the um i forgot what animal it was in and with the Native Americans, they killed all of their um, mm, animals. The buffalo. Buffaloes, yeah. yeah. And then uh, when we learnt about it, my teacher was just said, oh, they just um, died of starvation because hunting the animals was uh, something that people did. But why did they do that? There's a reason they did that, because they knew that starvation would work. And so that's still active genocide, but it's just hush hush yeah absolutely and i think this is this is kind of why we wanted to draw these conversations about the israel's genocidal campaign in in gaza at the moment together with this much longer history of trying to or of actively um what's sometimes termed ethnically cleansing so trying to dispossess palestinians from their land a process that has obviously happened both through overt um israeli violence but also through making the land untenable making it impossible for people to sustain their lives on that land my family's my grandmother's family's on in Silwan in Jerusalem we used to have this we had the most beautiful block of land I'm so lucky I got to see it before it got stolen from us um it was right on top of the hill and you can see the dome of the rock and like the sun gleaming on the gold it's gorgeous but we had olive fields and sage and my auntie used to say that the settlers would come and rip out the sage because they know that sage tea has health benefits if you have a migraine or a stomachache you drink sage tea so they would come and they would rip out the sage or they would burn the olive trees and it was just so Mm. sad yeah absolutely and and i think this is again where when we're thinking about the fact that um the israeli state is right now at the United Nations Climate Change Conference talking about the mechanisms through which they're going to, you know, create a just transition and out of fossil fuel um, reliance. At precisely the same moment as we know that, um, and I know this from you, Malak, that the genocidal siege in Gaza has also been, at least in part, about opening up further... um, space for mineral exploitation and um, particularly what I think is sometimes referred to as Gaza Marine. Um, There was a great piece in Overland this week by Alex Kelly and he talks about uh, he writes, Gaza Marine is a gas reserve of an estimated trillion cubic feet, 36 kilometres offshore from the Gaza Strip. In June this year, Israel gave preliminary approval for its development. And um, Kelly writes, in a chilling example of disaster capitalism, amidst uncertainty about how long the bombings will continue, um, both President Biden's energy security advisor, Amos Hochstein, and the energy news site Oil Price are speculating on how these gas reserves could help Gaza's recovery, which is pretty horrifying. But there's kind of even deeper convergences because the um, the... some of the infrastructure associated with the exploitation of Gaza Marine uh, is under the control of Adani, the very same Adani that is creating um, destructive mining licences across the Galilee Basin. Um, And they they are responsible for um, the port infrastructure and have built um, so-called security plans and carceral apparatus into their budgets for this port infrastructure on the basis of the, quote, volatility of the region. So this kind of horrifying convergence, right, of, of climate, um, it, you know, actively fueling the climate crisis, expanding gas and mineral um, exploitation in Gaza 
through this, like, you know, brutal, horrific regime of, of the siege. It's all connected. Yep. It's interesting. I think once people look at the system and then they realise that every single system is in turn goes back to how you can make the most money and look good doing it, it's a bit shocking for people who've kind of looked at it always with both eyes closed. Mm. But at least there are... it Like, it's coming to light that Gaza has oil and that Israel wants the oil and the reason... Like, part of the reason they're doing this bombing campaign is so that they can extract the oil and that is the opposite of what they're saying at this summit. Um, so it, it discloses some of their hypocrisy. But I think the most important thing about this is that it it's getting people who have never thought about Palestine in their entire lives to start thinking about the fact that okay if you're killing this many people just for oil then you're not only greedy but that's there's something else there mm. and it's good because the people who the system is made for are starting to stand up for the people who the system continues to dehumanize and exploit mm, absolutely yeah and i think this is this is something we're hoping to dig into um in the next part of the show we're really lucky we're going to be um catching up with one of the pacific climate warriors guy rathani who's going to be speaking to us over the phone and, and one of the things that i've learned from conversations with guy is around the 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 force and power of particularly Indigenous-led solidarity movements mm-hmm. globally, and we we heard this in in the reflections from Arnie Tracy as well. This staunch and uncompromising commitment to standing in solidarity with Palestinians, um, not just as a matter of kind of you know moral imperative, but because the struggles are connected. And I think this is um, something that I've I've heard Guy speak about before um, in making direct connections. And Malak, you as well just talked about the way that if we're thinking through this lens of um, environmental violence, climate injustice. We're thinking about the ways that land is made um, untenable, you know, through the rising of seas, through, um, you know, the kind of genocidal siege, all of these processes, through regimes of enclosure, all of these processes that make, um, that that lock Indigenous peoples out of the lands that are their kin. Um, and... Yeah, but also the kind of bonds of solidarity that are forming between those peoples who are rising. It's very beautiful. It is it's very beautiful. A bit emotional to watch. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're going to jump into a track while we get Guy uh, on the phone with us. This is a, an absolutely beautiful one and I think really speaks to a bunch of the, the conversations we're having to get today. Um, this is the wonderful Spinifex Gum with Can. You're listening to 4ZZZ. It's 17 minutes to 10. Without 
University Art Museum's exhibition, Each Other, considers human vulnerability and how people hold themselves together to find new ways of being in the world as family, friends, workmates, lovers, nations and territories. 
Featuring photography by Pixie Liao and Lin Japung, aka number 223, each other is drawn from the larger exhibition I Have Not Loved, Enough or Worked, from October 26th at Griffith University Art Museum, proud sponsor of 4ZZZ. You are listening to 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is uh, 12 minutes to 10. Can we believe it? We are rapidly running out of radio reversal for today. Uh, I'm Anna. I'm in the studio this week with Malak. We're uh, reversing the radio on uh, the relationship between colonisation, racial capitalism globally and um, the climate crisis, particularly thinking about the movement to free Palestine as a climate justice struggle. We're super grateful um, to be joined on the line now by uh, one of the um, Pacific Climate Warriors, Māori um, artist and organiser, uh, Guy Rathani. Are you on the line with us, Guy? Morena, Morena, Anna. Good to see you. Ooh, speak to you. <laughs> yeah, so lovely. So lovely to talk to you again. Um, and we're really grateful that you made the time to chat with us. So, um, Guy, I, I got to meet you uh, very briefly at the Rising Tide blockade. But for listeners who haven't come across your work before, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess your relationship to the climate justice movement? Yeah, thank you, Anna. Um, so I am a proud Pacific climate warrior. Um, I come from Ngāti Tōra, Rangatira, Ngāti Kahinunu and Ngāti Kauata. Those are my tribes from Aotearoa or New Zealand. Um, so that's the bottom tip of North Island and the top tip of the South Island. Um, I've been doing climate advocacy with uh, the Pacific climate warriors for about um, four, going on five years now. Um, and have been engaged in um, landscape care um, for waters, oceans, landscapes and skies uh, my whole life. So um, I've been privileged to be involved in a number of different campaigns and organising across um, Australia, across the Pacific and across New Zealand, um, getting to know our communities, um, frontline impacts, and uh, the work needed to happen for us to fight for a climate-just future, um, hopefully coming soon. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been, as I alluded to a bit earlier, we've been talking on today's show, I guess, about the kind of the importance of understanding colonisation and white supremacy as causes of environmental injustice, um, not not just in Gaza, but, but you know, specifically in, in the, this moment in Palestine, um, but also um, a- across the world. How do you see those relationships between colonisation, racism and environmental violence taking shape in the Pacific? Yeah, juicy question. Thank you, Anna. Um, and, and it's right to the core of it, so I'm glad you're having this conversation. I mean, you know, brief history lesson, I'll just pop a few few important things in there, firstly being um, the doctrine of discovery, which was, you know, predates even Tiranullius in Australia, mm. which is essentially um, how colonisation was made legal um, by the colonising forces, um, which was essentially any land that wasn't Christian-owned um, was able to be taken um, by Christian um, colonizers or people yep. creating new, new colonies. Um, that followed up by a decree called the Great Chain of Being, um, both of which these um, you can look up. Mm. Um, but essentially, the, the Great Chain of Being, I think, is one of the most important um, framings to understand when we talk about the connection between colonization and climate change. Now, the Great Chain of Being essentially outlines um, your divinity, um, in relation to the world around us. So 
humans sit somewhere on the scale um, below gods and angels and above um, animals and flora and fauna. Yep. And so this inherent um, framing that underpins so much of um, power, narrative, storytelling, understanding humanity um, through colonization um, underpins our relationship to the landscape and, and says, essentially, we are better than animals, we are yeah. better than our landscape, we are better than our skies and our waters. Um, and in fact, we are our skies and waters. We are made up of these beautiful exchanges by trees and oxygen and all of the stardust that has accumulated over time and memorial to become this fantastic thing we call the biosphere that we live upon all the diversity of our landscape. And so um, taking a decolonial lens is really important when we're talking about climate change because this narrative that we are better than our landscape that we need to survive is baked into every single colonial power structure and the fabric of our everyday life. Um, so when we take a decolonial narrative to how some of our organisations work, to the way the economy works, and sometimes the way our language works, we can recognise that baked into that is this really problematic narrative that we shouldn't take care of our landscape. Mm. And it's a bit insidious when we unpack it. So how that emerges systemically is a huge confusion about the value and right of the ocean, the sanctity and health of the blue corridors that our whales travel through that take nutrients and vital minerals all around the world. Um, the, you know, for example, the salmon runs in North America, um, the great North American forest, the, the lungs of that whole region, um, there are very little nitrogen fixes in the soil there. And where that nitrogen actually comes from is the great salmon runs that bring nitrogen out from the deep ocean all the way up the rivers. And then they die and their bodies decay and through insects and animals and the great beautiful web of life this gets deposited back in the soil so i'm getting quite nebulous on this mm. but there's a hugely interconnected narrative to how we understand ourselves and the world around us and when we look more at the colonial structures that separate us from that reality we can start to recognize how we've structurally um, made it difficult to advocate for the well-being and rights of our landscape and that's what we see happening with the fossil fuel um extraction with mining with the management of our waterways that continues to exacerbate um conditions for first nations people all around the world or the palestinians at the moment mm. whose land is under siege for a variety of reasons but also for the fact that there are very valuable um fossil fuel resources underneath their land and their seas as well so absolutely i went quite nebulous on that i hope that's that to it a little bit. Absolutely. And I, I actually think it's incredibly useful because part of what we, part of the reason I was really excited to speak with you for this show is because I think the, that, you know, what you're describing as the kind of nebulous web of connections that, that, um, you know, crisscross the globe and, and draw together these ecosystems that, um, that make, you know, the kind of borders of, of colonies absurd. Um, mm. Those those also speak to the kind of growing webs of um, of solidarity, particularly solidarities led by Indigenous peoples globally. And I think this is something I've heard you speak about before. But can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the way you're seeing these kind of um, these solidarities forming, um, maybe a, a alongside those kind of um, much much longer standing webs of connection that that span the globe? 
Mm, hugely. Thank you. Great question again. Um, I mean, you know, as Indigenous people, it's important for us to recognise the sovereignty of landscape, not just where we are, but everywhere in the world. And what's happening right now in Gaza to the Palestinian people and their land is essentially what happened um, in Australia. It's what happened in North America. It's what happened in Aotearoa. It's what happened in the majority lands of Indigenous people. And we're watching this unfold before our eyes. Now, a lot of our communities have spent a lot of time, you know, face-to-face living with the, the real lived experience of these systemic issues that were created many, many years ago. And we have to continue doing that intergenerational work of unpacking this, you know, system of harm. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen right now in Gaza. Mm. And so I'm not surprised to see First Nations and Indigenous communities across the world getting out in their entire cultural um, garments and with, you know, all of their mob coming along to fight for the rights of Palestinian people because essentially, you know, if the world was to acknowledge the right of occupation or move against the right of occupation that's happening right now in Gaza, um, they have to acknowledge that reality everywhere else. And so we're at a pivotal time in the world right now for Indigenous people across the world. If we can push to get Australia to acknowledge the sovereignty of Palestinians, then they have to go through that same process here. Mm. And, you know, I think about, you know, the, the, the harm and hurt of the referendum in Gaza all of this happening at the same time, but I think perhaps will this be what it takes to get us through? Can we push to acknowledge that sovereignty both in Palestine right now for all of the people who are tragically losing their lives and families and bloodlines and landscapes, but can we use this great tragedy to push for transformation that we know we need? Absolutely. Um, I, I could hear, listen to you talk about this all day, but very sadly, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Reversal. No um, this, this has been such a, a rich conversation and such an important, I think, convergence of these, these, um, these I guess, themes around um, the, the, the deep histories of colonial violence that have shaped the present, but also, and I think that that note to end on of um the kind of the forging of solidarities in this moment and the the possibilities that come from that um we've got 30 seconds less left malak final thoughts i think the greatest takeaway from all of this is how amazingly beautiful all in uh and resilient all indigenous peoples are like it's um it's been 75 years for us palestinians and we haven't stopped it's been almost 300 years for um, the Indigenous people of Australia and they haven't stopped fighting and we're not going to stop. Like It's just quite beautiful how resilient we can be when we're, especially uh, now that we're unified 